This is RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, joining me on today's program in segments two and three is economist and publisher of Insight Newsletter, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. I'm going to get Dr. Schilling's take on are we in a recession and get his forecast for stocks and bonds, which are the assets that many of you have in your 401k and IRA plan. So stay tuned for that. That's coming up in segments two and three. It is February, so I do have for you a February special report. The report is titled IRA Tax Management Strategies. If you'd like to get a copy of this report, which I would highly suggest if you have an IRA or a 401k, all you need to do is visit requestyourreport.com, and I'll be glad to send you a copy of this report. And I'll also, when you request that report, send you a copy of my updated for uh, 2024 book, uh, Revenue Sourcing, which contains a retirement planning strategy for today's economy. Now, maybe some of you listening today are old enough to remember the Bill Clinton campaign mantra of 1992. Now, Clinton's, uh, one of Clinton's anyway, lead political strategists at the time, James Carville, who you still see kicking around today offering his opinion on all things political, came up with this campaign mantra, which proved to be very successful. And that mantra was simply this, it's the economy, stupid. As I said, it was a wildly successful phrase, and it's one that a lot of Americans could relate to. And Clinton defeated the incumbent, George H.W. Bush, in an electoral college landslide. I think Clinton got 370 electoral votes. Now, while it may not be this election cycle, I'm sure that when the consequences of massive levels of government debt and monster levels of private sector debt become reality, some future politician might simply adopt this phrase to, it's the debt, stupid. See, debt levels at the present time, both on the balance sheet of the federal government and in the private sector, are at record levels. Now, in my view, it's only a matter of time before the debt hangover kicks in. And as far as hangovers go, this one has the potential to be especially painful. So let's start with government debt. Officially, if you go to the Debt Clock website, you'll see that the U.S. government debt now stands at about $34 and a quarter trillion. Now, according to an article in Bloomberg, and I have this all sourced at my website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, you can go check out the weekly Portfolio Watch newsletter, and uh, this Bloomberg article is sourced there. But interest costs on U.S. government debt crossed a trillion dollars annually as of the last quarter of 2023. Now, as I've noted here on the program in the past, to put that into perspective, the outlay for Social Security is about $1.35 trillion annually, so now interest costs on U.S. government debt have passed a trillion. Now, conservative estimates have the U.S. government's official debt at somewhere between $50 trillion and $60 trillion within a decade. So that's an increase of somewhere between $15 and $25 trillion over the next 10 years. And given that the U.S. government in the first quarter of this fiscal year operated at a deficit of an excess of $500 billion, that certainly seems to be a pretty conservative estimate. Now, at 
$50 trillion in debt at a 5% interest rate, just to do some simple math, we have a debt carrying cost of $2.5 trillion a year, which is approaching total U.S. individual tax revenues if we take Social Security and Medicare tax revenues out of the equation. Now, that assumes that interest rates don't move higher. Now, that could be uh, something that might be a, a bit of an optimistic forecast, given that the U.S. dollar is diminishing in status globally. And on top of that, this official debt of $34.25 trillion doesn't count the unfunded liabilities of the United States federal government. See, the U.S. federal government has made promises to pay Social Security benefits, to pay Medicare benefits. And if we look only at those those two programs, if we look only at Medicare and we look only at Social Security, the unfunded liabilities, according to Professor Lawrence Kotlikoff of Social Security, and this was an article that he wrote in Forbes, again, sourced on the website that I referenced earlier, Social Security's unfunded liabilities as of February of 2023, $61.8 trillion. The unfunded liabilities of Medicare, $103.4 trillion. So these two programs, about $165 trillion underfunded. So here's the big question. Should we call it the trillion-dollar question? Can this monster debt problem be solved? Is there a way to fix this problem without draconian cuts in spending or without creating currency? Now, in my view, I would say the answer to that is no. Now, one option to balance the budget and cut the bleeding is to cut federal spending across the board by more than 40%. There's probably a better chance of me winning the Masters with my 10 handicap than seeing federal spending cut by 40% across the board. And if spending were cut 40% across the board, that would simply put us into a huge economic contraction immediately, and we'd still have no plan to pay down the debt or fund the underfunded government programs that I just mentioned. So... Here's the proverbial elephant in the room. Where do we go from here? Well, in my view, we are going to see more easy money policies. We're going to see more currency devaluation. And history offers us abundant examples of this happening. I've discussed them here on the radio program. I have discussed them in my weekly Portfolio Watch newsletter. And incidentally, If you're not yet a subscriber to Portfolio Watch, you can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and sign up. It is free. It's delivered to your email box every week. I'd be very glad to send it to you. You'll get it every Monday um, at about 5 p.m. So the bottom line, just to summarize, is this. If the government's debt problem can't be solved or won't be solved via cost-cutting, there's only one other solution, currency creation. Because there's not enough money to solve this problem through raising taxes. Now, see, it really doesn't matter what policymakers say. It really doesn't matter what 
certain politicians say, rhetoric does not affect math. Now, if you don't believe me, get out the calculator that I just mentioned and perform a very simple exercise. Let's take the $200 trillion total. That's government debt and unfunded liabilities. It's really higher than that, but just take $200 trillion and divide $200 trillion by the 125 million tax returns filed in the United States. Here's the math. Each taxpayer would be on the hook for about $1.6 million. Can it be done? Well, if you file the tax return, you tell me. If you know people that have filed tax returns, you tell me how many people you know could come up with $1.6 million. Now, in my view, it can't be done. And the Federal Reserve published a chart recently, and I'll talk more about this in the last segment of today's program. The chart illustrates total wealth in the United States. Total wealth in the United States, according to the Fed's own estimate, stands at $140 trillion, and we have debt and unfunded liabilities of $200 trillion. That's really all you need to know. I'm going to talk more about this in the last segment of today's program. As I mentioned at the outset of this segment, joining me in segments two and three of today's program are Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Uh, And I will talk more about this again in the last segment. Let me remind you that if you've not yet gotten the February special report titled IRA Tax Management Strategies, you can get a copy absolutely free by visiting the website requestyourreport.com. The website again, requestyourreport.com. I'll be back after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Kubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is returning guest, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. If you're a longtime listener, you'll recognize uh, Dr. Schilling as the publisher of the widely read newsletter, Insight. It's a monthly publication that is more like a magazine. Uh, I would encourage you to check it out. You can get more information by visiting agaryschilling.com or by calling his office at 888-346-7444. I'll give that number again before this segment is over, 888-346-7444. Gary, welcome back to the program. Always glad to be with you, Dennis. So, Gary, uh, give the listeners your assessment of the health presently of the U.S. economy. Uh, Are we in recession? Are we headed there? What's your take? A lot of people are hoping that it's a soft landing, but, you know, we Americans tend to be perennial optimists, so you you expect that. And also, you got to recognize that most people on Wall Street are paid to be bullish, particularly on stocks. So you got to take that with a grain of salt. Um, the economy is, is, is really growing slowly. Whether it's going to tip into recession or not remains to be seen, but there are a lot of very reliable recessionary indicators out there, Uh, things like the index of leading indicators, things like stock prices and housing starts, things that normally precede the economy. 
they've turned down. Uh, uh, the the uh, uh, the Fed, the Federal Reserve, raising interest rates as it did. Uh, that's almost always a prelude to a recession. And by the way, the normal, the average, if you look at the last seven recessions, the Fed started to raise interest rates 26 months before the onset of the recession. Well, it's been 24 months since they started raising rates. That was back in in, in March of uh, 2022. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're we're right up to the point where, at least historically, on an average basis, and it varies, of course, uh, you would say the economy is uh, due for a for, due for a downturn. Uh, the uh, uh, so, so so I and you look at other things. You look at uh, consumer intentions to buy houses and cars. Uh, that's declined. Consumer confidence. It's twenty percent below where it was before the uh, pandemic. Uh, small business. Small business is a very good indicator of uh, the economy because small businesses tend to be thinly capitalized, and they're very so it makes them very sensitive to economic conditions. And their intentions to hire have have declined. And then you look at labor markets. Uh, they're starting to they're starting to ease. Uh, people are staying put. They're not quitting the way they they were earlier because uh, they're not sure that jobs are available. And you know, there are a lot of these indicators now. It doesn't guarantee that we're going to see a recession in the sense that the total economy will turn down. Uh, but it it certainly points that way. And and there's a lot of historical evidence. The idea of a soft landing. Well, by my reckoning, the only one that we've had in the entire post-World War II period was in the mid-90s. And I define a soft landing as a time when the Federal Reserve raised rates and then lowered them without the economy turning down. If they raise them, you don't know what's going to happen until they raise them. They maybe just have jacked them up and then pausing and going to push them up higher. It's only when they then actually turn from tightness to ease that you can say they've affected a soft landing. And the only one uh, in the post-World War II period was in the mid-'90s. So the odds are the odds are very much in favor of recession. Well, if you're just joining me, I'm chatting with Dr. A. Gary Schilling. He is the publisher of Insight. Uh, you can learn more about that terrific monthly publication at agaryshilling.com or call his office at 888-346-7444. And, and Gary, uh, you know, back in December, uh, Chairman Powell said that, you know, rate cuts are on the table. Uh, maybe it was a head fake, but he kind of didn't really reverse course, but uh, said maybe we'll put it off for a little bit. Um, did, did, what's your take on what Fed policy will be for the rest of 2024? Well, uh, you know, you know, the, I, I think the Fed intends to cut rates at, at some point here. I, they 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 seem to be signal that they're through raising them, but how soon they're going to cut them? Uh, what they say and what markets have perceived are very different. They, if you look at their at their uh, numbers, and the last published uh, version was in December, uh, they looked at three uh, cu- uh, cuts this year of a quarter inch uh, quarter uh, of a percentage point in their policy rate, the overnight federal funds rate. Uh, now, the markets uh, have been assuming six or seven cuts, and it's kind of interesting that uh, there was a widespread belief, belief that the first one was going to start in March and then 
couple of weeks ago, uh, Fed Chairman Powell came out and said, no, that's not on the table. And boy, it caused caused a momentary setback uh, by uh, uh, in the optimist views, uh, but uh, you know the Fed is in, in no rush, and I think I think there are a couple of reasons that they are in no rush to cut rates. One is that you had so much uh, tightness in labor markets earlier that all the hiring has uh, has created a mindset where businesses don't want to turn around and fire people, even though their sales and profits are soft. It takes it takes time to shift gears 180 degrees, particularly after they had so much pain and and expense and trouble hiring people. So that stretches it out. And and the Fed, I think, is not going to do anything until they see considerable softness in labor markets. It's it's starting to be there around the fringes, but not substantially. And the other reason is that the Fed was very slow to recognize the burst of inflation in early 2022. Uh, matter of fact, they didn't start raising rates until March of 2022, and it was only three year, three months later that inflation actually peaked. They were way behind the curve, and everybody thought that they were going to, uh, that Chairman Powell was going to repeat the practice of his predecessors, Greenspan, and then Bernanke, and then Yellen, and they, they call those the puts, uh, the put in in a, in a sense of of our futures markets that you could put, you could you could hand off any economic problems to the Fed, that Wall Street could put their problems to the Fed. Well, that left, that left Powell getting a late start and having that expectation there was going to be a Powell foot put. It left him uh, really behind the eight ball. So he's had to be extra uh, vigilant, and I think that's another reason that the Fed is going to take their good sweet time and in cutting rates, uh, they want to make sure that inflation is back to their 2% target and sustainably. So I, I think this whole process is going to take a lot longer than even now markets believe, and they've had some setbacks from Powell's comments that threw some cold water on their expectations. Gary, you know, another thing that I've been uh, reading, in fact, I just read that in the fourth quarter of 2023, consumer debt pretty much all across the board was higher. We're seeing uh, delinquency rates on uh, auto loans, on mortgage loans uh, certainly go up. Credit card debt now, I think, $1.1 trillion. Uh, consumers continue to be adding debt, and, and at some point it seems that that trend will have to reverse. And, and isn't that also uh, recessionary just by its very nature? Oh, yeah, very much so. And, Dennis, as a matter of fact, I'm just, <clears throat> just this morning, I've been writing about that for our our March uh, monthly newsletter insight uh, because consumers have been, they have been in effect living beyond their means. They have been borrowing. They've been running down the savings that all the checks they got back during the pandemic. Uh, they've run up uh, uh, credit card debts. Uh, and of course they're, they're now have run out of that ability. And there's uh, one point, uh, $3 trillion in consumer debts as of last October, they they now are being forced to be repaid. So I think we're going from a period where consumer spending was rising faster than incomes uh, to the reverse of that, where people are going to be uh, are going to be retrenching. So, yeah, I think this has gotten uh, this has gotten to the, the turning point and consumers account for 70 percent of 
total economic activity. Uh, so if consumers uh, switch from uh, from uh, uh, exuberance to caution, it makes a huge increase for the total economy. Gary, I think the other uh, proverbial elephant in the room is U.S. government debt. I was reading that the U.S. government has to refinance between eight and nine trillion dollars of debt this year, and of course, as we all know, the deficit still looks pretty big. Um, what impact do you think that this, you know, that this U.S. government debt's really a, 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 a ticking bomb? I mean, at some point, this can't continue. How, how do you see this end game playing out, and, and how does that impact the economy? Well. <clears throat> Matter of fact, we've uh, written in our previous uh, uh, inside newsletters uh, uh, numerous times about what we call a debt bomb, and and that's the condition in which the interest on the debt gets so big uh, that the interest adds to the debt and it grows uh, it grows exponentially, uh, and the whole thing blows up. Now we've never been there in this country, thank goodness. Uh, and to get there, I think it would take a very high interest rates on a sustained basis uh, to push the interest on the debt to astronomical levels. And and how would you get there? Well, it would take, I think, uh, uh, double-digit inflation over a number of years to so roll over the government debt to higher to higher interest rate costs, and uh, or a complete collapse of confidence uh, in the federal government and the treasury. You know? You know, we, we've got an advantage in this country that we we abuse, and the treasuries are uh, pretty much the premier security in the world. Everybody wants them, uh, so we can, and we're issuing debt in our own currency. So, uh, U.S. has the opportunity to be really uh, exercise very little discipline uh, relative to other countries. But I think that debt bomb is is out in the future. It, it could happen, but it isn't there, and. You know, the idea of uh, people say, well, you're going to have to pay it off eventually. Uh, well, that's true if you think the country is coming to a grinding halt. I think people confuse a family with the total economy. And a family, you know, you start out when you're young, uh, you're borrowing a lot of money to finance cars and, and kitty equipment and houses and so on. And then later on, you accumulate assets. The kids leave for college, take their tuition payments with them and so on, and you accumulate assets, and you end up paying off debt and, and end up with a positive net worth. That's true of a family, but it's not true of a country. Unless you think the country is going to come to a grinding hall out there somewhere in the foreseeable future, you don't have that generational kind of kind of uh, uh, progression. And and uh, so I, I think the, I mean, I'm no fan of government debt and deficits because I think a lot of it goes to finance unproductive uh, activities, uh, but uh, in terms of it really turning into a collapse, uh, the idea, well, our, our grandchildren are going to have to pay it back, um, I, I, don't, I, don't see, I don't see that as an absolute necessity. I wish it were true, but it's not. Well, my guest today is Dr. A. Gary Schilling. If you have not checked out his Insight newsletter, I would encourage you to do that by visiting agaryshilling.com or calling his office at 888-346-7444. We will return after these words.
I'm Dennis Kuberg, and you're listening to RLA Radio. My guest on today's program is the publisher of Insight Newsletter, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Uh, you can visit his website, agaryshilling.com, and learn more about Insight, or call his office at 888-346-7444. And uh, Gary, let me talk just a little bit. Um, You know, there's a lot of noise being written out there about the BRICS coalition, you know, starting with Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Now we've got the oil producing countries of Saudi Arabia, Iran, United Arab Emirates that are part of BRICS. To what extent do you think that will impact the desire for U.S. treasuries internationally, if at all? Well, it, uh, treasuries are, are one of the few safe havens and the only one of any size. I mean, you could say, well, Swiss francs are, are very safe, but it's a small uh, economy, small uh, market for Swiss francs. So it, really, there isn't much choice except uh, except uh, the dollar and, and, and treasuries. I mean, uh, China would like their yuan, their currency, to be an international currency, but they want to control it. and and international investors are just not interested in controlled uh, currencies. Uh, the British, hey, they ran the world in the 19th century financially, but but that's but that's history. I mean, there's just there's no there's, uh, the Japanese. They do not want the end to be an international currency. So there's really no option in the dollar. You may say it's the best of the bad lot. Uh, you know, it's the. <laughs> cleanest sock in the laundry it's the it's the <laughs> tallest midget it's the uh, slowest falling rock but whatever it is it's it's the best <laughs> of a lot uh so so uh you really do have this tremendous advantage and as i say i think i think we abuse that we take advantage of of this international zeal for the dollar and for treasuries but that's the way the world is so gary uh you know you mentioned in the first segment that you know, stocks, uh, you know, where, where the market was kind of pricing in six or seven cuts. Powell came out and, uh, you know, uh, really uh, put that to rest that maybe that's not what they're looking at. Yet we've got stocks that new all time highs, and it just doesn't seem that stocks should be at those levels given some of the economic news that is out there. Uh, in past interviews, you've not been overly bullish on uh, U.S. stocks. So uh, where do you stand right now on where U.S. stocks go for the rest of 2024? What are you telling your subscribers to Insight? Well, I'm suggesting that they're way overpriced if you look at stocks in relation to earnings. One of the ways I like to look at it in terms of is what's called uh, cyclically adjusted uh, price earnings ratio uh, developed by a friend uh, uh, at at, at Yale. Uh, And uh, it's a... you know, it it really looks at at stocks uh, at, at earnings on the S and P 500 over the last 10 years uh, adjusted for inflation, and this is uh, Bob Schiller at Yale developed this. But anyway, uh, if you look at that, stocks are about 45 percent higher than their long term average, and that average goes back to 1880. Now you can say history is no longer relevant. Uh, but as Sir John Templeton said, uh, the most dangerous words in the English language are, this time it's different. <laughs> and so I think you have to be very careful. I mean, stocks are very, very expensive now. And they're expensive not only in measured in earnings, they're expensive relative to treasuries, to other investment, uh, uh, competing investments. Uh, so, so how stocks get corrected 
you know, you never know. But if we wake up one of these days and find that a major company has gotten into trouble and that triggers a huge sell-off in stocks, I wouldn't be at all surprised. So, Gary, given that you said, you know, stocks are 45% higher than the long-term average going back, you know, 130 years or so, if the math in my head was right, um, but does that mean that, you know, you, you, we could see a correction here of maybe 40, 50% in your view? Possible, possible. I mean, I've been I've been looking for something around the 20 to 30% range, but uh, it it could even be bigger than that. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. And and you look also at all the speculation we've had. I mean, you look at things like Bitcoin. You know, here's a here's a black box, and I don't believe in black boxes. You don't even know who cre- created a thing. You look at all the uh, FTX. You look at all the out and out speculations and fraud that have, have taken place. Uh, you know, this has been a wildly speculative kind of market, and it it it's a reminiscent. And then there's the Magnificent Seven. Uh, you know, these seven stocks and uh named after the uh magnificent seven the old movie these uh seven gunslingers that uh basically freed a mexican village well remember that only three of those guys survived <laughs> but in any event, any event uh, uh the concentration of interest into relatively few stocks i think is always dangerous because it means that investors are telling you but they really don't like the rest of the stock market and therefore uh, the bulk of the economy. It's very much like the Nifty 50 back in the uh, early 1970s. And when you got down to the fact that the only thing people wanted to buy were amusement parks, Disney, uh, motorhomes, uh, Winnebago, uh, uh, Polaroid, gimmick cameras, uh, you know, when, when it got down to the, these are the these are the outward flourishes of the economy. They're not the guts of it. And, and as a result, uh, I think that was that, that period was telling you that, that there was big trouble for the economy. And there was, we had, uh, following at the 1973, 75 recession, the sharpest up until that time since the 1930s. And interesting in the case of Polaroid, you know, they, they, what happened there, they simply knocked a zero off. It went from 140 to 14. Wow. So, Gary, uh, let, let me, if I could, just play devil's advocate here for a second. Uh, U.S. Treasuries being a safe haven, I don't think there's anybody out there, would, out there that would argue with that. But when you take a look at the performance of long-term U.S. Treasuries uh, over the past couple of years since the Fed has been increasing interest rates, um, an investor holding U.S. Treasuries or U.S. Treasury ETF uh, could, could be down a lot of money. Do, do, do you see what's your comment on that? And do you see that changing moving ahead? Well, there's no question there's been a setback. I mean, as you know, I've been a fan on Treasury since the early 80s when the yield on the 30-year bond was 14.3%. Now it got it got below 3 uh 14.3 it got below 3%. Uh it's it's now it's now in a 5% range, but uh you know, I I think that I think that with the the Fed likely to ease with the economy softening with inflation receding um, I, I think we're I think we're in for a, another substantial rally in Treasuries, meaning higher prices, lower uh, lower yields. Gary, do you have a take on commodities, agricultural commodities, uh, you know, industrial commodities? What's your take on where those go? Well, commodities. Uh, matter of fact, we've we've done some work on that. We have a chart that we show period. Matter of fact, I'm going to show it in this 
this uh, March Insight again. It it looks at inflation-adjusted commodity prices going back to 1700. And what's interesting, since the mid 1800s, they've been in a declining trend. Now there have been there have been uh, spikes during wars, uh, oil embargoes, and so on, but the trend has been distinctly down. And that's interesting because there's always the argument there's only so much copper in the world's surface and cobalt and iron and what have you. Uh, but the point is that commodities, uh, in the long run, are 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 a negative. Uh, a negative investment is the winner in, in commodities. I mean, I can remember uh, back when uh, back when uh, people thought the telecommunications sector was going to come to grinding halt because there wasn't enough copper on the on the Earth's surface to make all the uh, all the transmission lines. Well, what happened? Uh, they discovered uh, fiber optics and made out of silicone, and silicone is the second most common element on the Earth's surface. And and uh, so that that was the end of, of that scare. Uh, human ingenuity always beats shortages, and that's particularly true in commodity substitution, new uh, new uh, uh, developments. Um, uh, commodities are just uh, you know on a short term basis, there certainly are. Our, our plays there, but on a long-term basis, commodities are uh, they're more to be played on the short side than the long side. Gary, we have time for one more question here. I can't believe how fast time goes when I start picking your brain, but I'm enjoying it thoroughly. Tell me a little bit about your forecast for housing. We're starting to see some slowdown around the fringes, but if we're expecting maybe lower interest rates and in, uh, in, uh, inflation subsiding, does that give this housing market another leg up, or, or where do you see that going? Well, ha- housing has been uh, certainly depressed, largely because of the leap in interest rates and previous overbuilding. Uh, but but the rise in interest rates, it, it made houses more unaffordable, and it also meant, as I think everybody knows, that people who had gotten mortgages before the pandemic, back when they were getting around 3%, they don't want to sell their houses and move to another house because they'd have they'd have to take out a mortgage at more than twice the the yield on their on their current mortgage. So they're going to sit stay tight. So you have this really odd situation of high mortgage rate yet shortage of housing inventories. It's it's a it's an anomaly. Well, uh, interest rates, uh, mortgage rates. Our thirty-year fixed mortgage rates are very much tied to ten-year Treasury yields—a very close correlation. And as the Treasury eases, eases rates, uh, inflation eases, uh, possible recession, uh, those yields are going to come down uh, on ten-year Treasuries and, and affect thirty-year uh, t- uh, fixed-rate mortgages, which is sort of the standard uh, for the industry. So, so I think we will see a uh, revival in in housing uh, uh, later on. Uh, but it's uh it it's gonna it's gonna take time. It isn't a it isn't something that's gonna happen overnight. But I think over the next uh, three or four years we'll probably see uh, a, a considerable revival in housing activity. Well, my guest today has been Dr. A. Gary Schilling. I would encourage you to check out his Insight newsletter. Uh, you can visit his website agaryshilling.com or call his office at eight 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 three four six seven four four four. Uh, Dr. Schilling, always great to catch up with you. Thank you for joining us today. Love to have you back down the road. Look forward to it, Dennis. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye-bye. My pleasure. We will return after these words. 
You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. And thanks again to my special guest today, Dr. A. Gary Schilling, for joining us on today's program. In the first segment of today's program, I talked about the fact that the total U.S. government debt is over $34 trillion, about $34.24 trillion to be more precise. And the unfunded liabilities of just Social Security and Medicare, according to Professor Lawrence Kotlikoff, total about $165 trillion, with the unfunded liabilities of Social Security standing as $61.8 trillion, and the unfunded liabilities of Medicare uh, are uh, about $103.4 trillion. So when we took a look at debt plus the unfunded liabilities of Social Security and Medicare, we get a fiscal gap of $200 trillion, which is a very conservative estimate of the total level of government debt and unfunded liabilities. And since there are about 125 million tax returns filed in the United States each year, chances are pretty good if you're listening to this today, you are one of those 125 million. If we have a calculator and take $200 trillion and divide by 125 million tax returns, that means each taxpayer to pay off the debt and solve the unfunded liabilities problem would have to come up with about $1.6 million. Now, granted, that is a bit of an oversimplification. You could pay this down over time. The economy could grow. The dollar will be devalued. That will all potentially lessen the impact. But it can't really be done at this point. If you go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, you'll see that there is a Portfolio Watch newsletter there uh, that is dated the 18th of February. And in that, you'll find a chart directly from the Federal Reserve that shows U.S. wealth, all sectors, stands at about $140 trillion. $200 trillion in debt and unfunded liabilities versus $140 trillion in total wealth. Now, even assume, even assuming you could solve this debt and unfunded liability problem, we still have a deficit problem. And the fact remains that spending would still have to be cut by more than 40% to balance the budget. So when you look at these facts and think about it, it seems clear what will happen, doesn't it? There will be likely more dollar devaluation, more currency creation. They won't call it that, but that's essentially what will have to happen. But when it comes to debt, the story doesn't end there. Private sector debt is rising as well. Now, if your household income doesn't buy what it used to buy because of inflation, you spend savings if you have it, and then perhaps you resort to borrowing to make ends meet. Now, there's plenty of evidence that much of the U.S. population is doing just that. Now, the Fed recently issued a household debt and credit report. They, they, they released this report the first part of February, and I have the source again on my website if you would like to go visit it. But in the report, the Fed talks about the fact that aggregate household debt balances increased by $212 billion in the fourth quarter of 2023. $212 billion, a little simple math, that's about $70 billion in debt 
that U.S. households in the aggregate altogether are adding each month. That's a 1.2% increase from the third quarter of 2023. Total household debt balances now stand at $17.5 trillion, and they've increased by $3.4 trillion since the end of 2019. Delinquency rates, not surprisingly, also went up in the fourth quarter of 2023. As of December of 2023, 3%, 3.1% to be exact, of outstanding debt was in some stage of delinquency, and that was also up from the third quarter. On an annualized basis, 8.5% of all credit card balances are now delinquent. About 1 in 12 credit card holders are behind on their payments, And it's about the same ratio for those having auto loans. 7.7% of all auto loans are now delinquent. Missed federal student loan payments? We don't know. We have to assume that those are following the same track. However, missed federal student loan payments will not be reported to credit bureaus until the fourth quarter of 2024. So we will not know what those numbers are until the first quarter of 2025. And call me cynical, but I find it interesting that student loan delinquencies will not be reported to credit bureaus until just after the election. Now, if you're so inclined, I would suggest that you go back and read this Fed report. And again, the link is on the retirementlifestyleadvocates.com website. Go check it out. But the bottom line here is this. Nearly all types of household debt increased in the fourth quarter of 2023. So not only is the U.S. government getting deeper in debt by the day, so is the American populace collectively. And delinquency rates also are rising. And again, that is not surprising either. Now, since we have concluded in this segment that the only way to even attempt to address federal debt and unfunded liability is through more currency creation or devaluation, I would expect that debt delinquencies in the future will rise exponentially as the inflation fires are once again fueled. Now, as you have just discovered, not everyone agrees with my assessment. But here's the point. Here's why I bring this up on today's program. Navigating the economic and investing environment that lies ahead is going to require a plan that's prepared to attempt to address these very troubling circumstances. So I would ask you if you have a plan. And if you don't, I would encourage you to get the free resources that I'm offering this month. I've got the IRA Tax Strategies Report. It will tell you if you have an IRA or 401k or 403b or TSP or 457, any of those plans, it'll give you some strategies to minimize taxes on those retirement accounts and maximize the benefits to you and your family. If you go to requestyourreport.com, I'll send you a copy of that IRA tax management strategies report. And when you do that, I'll also send you a box of information. And in that box will be my recently updated revenue sourcing book. At the last quarter of 2023, I updated this book for 2024. It is completely updated, and it contains a retirement planning strategy for the economy 
that we find ourselves in today. So again, requestyourreport.com gets you the revenue sourcing book. It gives you the IRA tax management report. And again, requestyourreport.com is the website. Also, as I mentioned earlier in this segment, if you're not yet a subscriber to the free Portfolio Watch newsletter, you can sign up at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's my program for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.